Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God welcomes you to this place. The you, you you are today, the you that you can't escape, the you that was filled with wonderings and thoughts and feelings and dreams and even griefs. Just as you are, God welcomes you to this place. And yet God never leaves us where we are and God calls us to a new place. And so we pray with the psalmist. The Lord is my light and my salvation. From whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. For whom shall I be afraid? One thing I ask of the Lord, this one thing do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his holy temple. Yet I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let us stand and sing to the goodness of God. breath that I am 
You may be seated. Friends, we're going to enter into a moment of prayer together, but I invite you to pray with your eyes open because there will be art behind me on the screen and then occasional words that we will share together out loud responsively. So let's pray together. Almighty God, you have been called the great hound of heaven because you are continually in pursuit of us. And Jesus told stories of a good shepherd who went searching for the one lost sheep. Whether we have wandered away by choice or by accident, and whether our lostness is in our heads or in our hearts or in our daily decisions, we pause to remember that you have always been one to go toward us, even when we least deserve it. Help us to rejoice in being found by you, and please give us courage to be like you in seeking the lost, those lost to you or lost to us. And together we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for coming to us when we were at our worst. Please help us to be like you and going toward others, seeking reconciliation. Teach us to always hope for lost things to be found and broken things to be fixed. Everlasting Father, you've promised in the scriptures to hear us when we pray, but sometimes the honest truth is that we feel as if we're at our wit's end. We're stuck on a dead-end road. We're unable to see any way forward, like Abraham, who was supposed to be the father of the nations, and yet he had no kids. Especially when the future seems bleak, please prompt us to pray. Like Jesus, our lead example, help us to give ourselves and all of our life situations over to you. We confess that sometimes prayer is the last thing on our mind. We have other strategies for fixing problems, and often those plans don't include you, oh God. So please stir in us a desire to go to you always, to go Godward, trusting that you will make a way where there seems to be no way. And together we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for praying with us and for us even when we lack the words to say. Please help us to stop staring at our feet and to go Godward in prayer. Lord of all creation, it's hard for us to admit that we don't know everything or that sometimes we might be wrong. And it's scary sometimes to let ourselves get curious about you, oh God, about others, and about what's really true. When the Apostle Peter saw a sheet in the sky, it became for him an entirely new way of seeing the world. He didn't go on to defend old territories or to keep himself comfortable by never exploring new things. He embraced faith as an ever-learning and ever-growing journey. Like Jesus, please help us to always be curious about people, their hearts, and their backstories. And we ask, O oh God, that you would help us to unclench our fists so that we might dare to risk loving anyways. And together we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for honoring us with so many questions about our hopes, our fears, our hearts, and our abilities. It's really nice to be treated like a person that matters ultimately. Please help us to do unto others as you have done unto us. God of peace, 
as this next piece of art draws our attention to the story of Jonah, we are reminded again that the heart of the matter is often a matter of the heart. And Jonah had a deep problem with the Ninevites, so he didn't want them to know that you, O God, are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the most literal of ways, he was forced to go deep. And his journey in the belly of the fish became, even for Jesus, a primary example of death and resurrection. Facing hardship is deep stuff, and it sometimes can feel like dying. But Jesus showed us the way, and he is now the firstborn of the dead with others, even us, sure to follow. That's deep. And so together we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for going to the ultimate depths for us, for me. Please help us to go deep with others, exploring our fears and loves in conversation while trusting that all things really can and do hold together in Christ. Finally, God of hope, we recognize our desperate need for things to be made right. Even in our efforts to do good, we often stumble, we apologize, we need many do-overs. We need your help to make things right and repeatedly need to be made right ourselves. Thankfully, you have promised to do it, O God, with all of creation at the end of the age. And you have already done it for us in Christ by his great work of redemption and atonement. And to be sure, we are not the Savior. Only Jesus Christ is. But in his name, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So please help us, O God, to do what you have called us to do and to do what we can to make right whatever is wrong. Together we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for doing whatever it takes to restore us. Please help us to be like you, little Christs, who prioritize getting right, even if it is costly to do so. In all of these prayers, O oh God, we are mindful of family members, of neighbors, of co-workers, of anyone with whom we have burned bridges relationally. We think of people far, far away and of people so different from us that neighborliness seems impossible in all of our relational deserts and even in relation to our own selves. We ask for help in taking the Jesus way to go toward, to go Godward, to get curious, to go deep, and to get right. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, the Waymaker. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing together? good news. Our world, broken and scarred, still belongs to God, who holds it together and gives us hope. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor as you are comfortable.
Good morning, Fellowship Church and friends uh, gathered here this morning in person or online. We are glad to have you. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you're new or if you're visiting with us for the first or maybe second, third, fourth, whatever time, uh, you are welcome. Uh, and we'd love to have get to know you a little bit if you'd like to let yourself be known to us uh, by filling out one of these connection cards uh, that are as not just on the screen, but also in the back of the sanctuary and at the Welcome Center. Wanted to send a little thank you note, or this week I got a thank you note from one of our local mission partners, and I just wanted to share it with you because it was kind of cool, uh, and it reminded me of something, uh, and that is from Gateway Mission. Uh, they gave us this little thank you card that kind of highlighted, because of our partnership, the, some of the stuff that they were able to do for our community uh, through meals and nights of shelter and months in the program. But one thing that you might not have known is that actually uh, the Gateway Mission uh, Thrift Store, whatever they call that, the resource store, if you bring donations there and you say, hey, I'm from Fellowship Church, uh, that donation then gets tallied and valued, and then we, uh, Fellowship Church, gets 10% of the value of that donated item back in the form of a gift card for us to hand out to other people in our community who might need one. So if you need a gift card, come to my office afterwards. Or uh, if you know someone that might benefit of that, uh, but just wanted to let you know, there's a lot of great thrift stores. We're not necessarily favorites on any of them, but this is just a, a really cool program that uh, benefits uh, us twice uh, in, in a way by giving back some, and then we can give back to others as well. Also wanted to share with you a little opportunity. Uh, this year, like every year, we are gonna be doing our VBS the week after school gets out. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to engage with our neighborhood, but also kind of help form and disciple our own kids. And this year, we already have signed up right now as many kids as came last year to VBS. And there's still five weeks left, and everybody likes to wait to the last minute. So we're anticipating a bumper crop. Uh, not, a, not a crop, but you know, a lot of kids. <laughs> And, uh, but because of that, we also need a little help. Uh, and there's going to be an extra need for some folks to help make that happen. So if you uh, might sense the Holy Spirit uh, coming in the form of an elbow by someone next to you, that you might want to be uh, helping out with us on that. Um, we, I encourage you to talk to Miss Betsy. She'll be uh, around after the service or one of the pastors. We're all available and ready to point you in, the right, in that right direction for that. Also, uh, that is just one of the ways in which we can give of ourselves by giving of our time. Uh, we also can give of ourselves in giving of our financial resources. And as you uh, may have heard at our congregational meeting a couple weeks ago, we are in the midst of a transition uh, from uh, an old giving platform to a new giving platform. Uh, and one of the ways uh, that you can give is by give, uh, downloading a new app. And you can give right on that app. It's a pretty cool thing. You can read about it uh, on our website that you can find in the bulletin. But it has also revealed to us a couple kind of interesting statistics. Did you know that there's roughly 100 people or 100 uh, households that are giving uh, every single month to the ministry of, uh, that God's doing through Fellowship Church? Did you know that there's another 250 people that give on occasion through uh, our giving app? And did you know that there's about 20-ish, 30-ish people that give every quarter through an IRA distribution? These are just some of the cool ways in which you can give to the ministry that God is doing. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to kind of talk to us. Um, but you can also give old school with a bull in the back of the sanctuary. So if you want to participate in the ministry God is doing uh, in and through Fellowship Church, uh, there's plenty of ways to do that. Uh, and we're grateful for all the ways in which um, you partner with us in that way. 
Kids that are ages three through fifth grade are at this time dismissed uh, to their places uh, with Miss Betsy uh, back there uh, while the rest of us uh, prepare our hearts uh, to hear God's word this morning.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of being able to gather together as your people to worship you, to sing to you, to pray to you, um, to extend peace to one another um, in your name, and to study the scriptures together. As we turn toward those scriptures, Lord, we pray that you would, um, you would just grant us a fresh outpouring of your spirit, that we might see you more clearly, that we might hear you more clearly, and that we might live you more faithfully. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. If I've not yet met you, I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you uh, if I haven't met you yet. And this morning, um, we are continuing a series that we've been calling Afterglow. Uh, in this series, we're exploring the resurrection appearances of Jesus um, and unpacking the implications of the resurrection, not only for our eternity, but also for our lives. What difference does the resurrection make? What difference does it make for our souls, for our lives, and even for our relationships, uh, which is why we've also been exploring a tool from a partner organization of ours uh, here in West Michigan called the Colossian Forum. Uh, the Colossian Forum has been around for a few years. You've probably interacted with them through some of the things that we've hosted here years uh, over the years, or maybe in other places and other churches. Something like 20 of us gathered together and drove over to a two-day workshop um, two-day workshop hosted at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grandville, which is a whole city, apparently. And, <laughs> uh, and during that time, we got a chance to learn a little bit more about this model called Wayfinder of theirs. And we've been introducing you to different aspects of that model uh, over the last couple of weeks as well. We actually just prayed through that model um, a few moments ago. But the Colossian Forum, um, they exist to essentially help Christians, um, churches, parachurch organizations to transform conflicts such that conflict that really needly thing that all of us would rather not be a part of, that conflict becomes an opportunity for us to become more like Jesus. How many of you become more like Jesus when you're fighting with someone, right? Like it's easier said than done. Like when someone cuts you off on I-196, especially during construction season, is it the teachings of Jesus that just flow off your lips so easily? Uh, do, you, do you hand signal the love of Jesus to the other cars? Uh, <laughs> You don't have to answer. <laughs> the reality is we all struggle with this, uh, but not just on I-196, not just in the gym and in places where we interact with people super infrequently, particularly in our relationships with our loved ones, our, our friends, our family, our um, neighbors, our colleagues, the people that we're closest to. Remember, the first recorded murder in the scriptures was between brothers in a poll conducted in 2022, um, something like one in five Americans said that they had lost a relationship due to politics. One in five, one in five. And something like 75% of them want to do better, but don't know how. What if there was a way to navigate conflicts in such a way that helps us become more like Jesus? What if our transformation, what if our witness in a polarized age depends on it? And what if the very fact of the resurrection makes it possible? And what if even the stories of Jesus appearing to his disciples points the way? So hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 24, picking up in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
And while they, these disciples of Jesus, were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, Cleopas, uh, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they did not see. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he were going to go farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. This is the word of the Lord. So our story begins with two people, two disciples of Jesus, walking along the road toward Emmaus. And we don't know exactly who the two of them are. We only know that one of them was named Cleopas. But we do know where they're headed they're, uh, now, there's, they're headed to Emmaus. Now, there's endless speculation about where Emmaus might be. Uh, Luke only tells us that it's about seven miles, seven miles away from where? Jerusalem. Yeah, seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, here's why you should notice this, because the bulk of Luke's account of Jesus's life uh, is consumed, uh, consumed by Jesus's journey into or toward the heart of Jerusalem, starting all the way in Luke chapter 13, continuing through 18, 19, um, all the way up into chapter 21. When Luke picks up then in Acts, the sequel to the account of Jesus' life, Luke essentially tells the story of Jesus' followers then journeying throughout, but ultimately beyond Jerusalem in Acts chapter one. Now you might say then that there are two essential directions, two essential directions, uh, points of direction in the two books written by Luke. I mean, the gospel of Luke, the journey to Jerusalem or the journey toward Jerusalem, and in the book of Acts, the journey out from and beyond the borders of Jerusalem. Now, the journey toward Jerusalem culminates in what event? It's pretty easy, crucifixion, right? culminates in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And when does the journey out from Jerusalem begin? It's right there in red. Holy Spirit comes uh, when Jesus commissions his disciples, same event. Uh, But here's the point, not a moment sooner than that. Not a moment sooner than that. So here we are in the final chapter of Luke's gospel and two of Jesus' followers are wandering along the road to Emmaus, which is to say they're leaving Jerusalem. Now, has the Holy Spirit come upon them yet? No. Have they been commissioned as Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth? No. So the question that Luke wants us to ponder is, why are they leaving Jerusalem? 
Why are they leaving Jerusalem? The second thing our text tells us about these two followers of Jesus is what they're doing. Uh, They're talking together about all of the things that have happened over that weekend. The seizing of Jesus, uh, the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and what it all means in light of the teachings and the miracles of Jesus, and and the yet unconfirmed story or the unconfirmed report of the resurrection of Jesus. They're talking to each other about all the things that had happened These are major events that they're talking about, but they're not just reviewing the headlines of the day. Verse 15 says they're talking and discussing together, which might be a little bit redundant unless you look a little bit more closely at this word discussing. Luke uses this word suzateo. I repeat after me, suzateo. Suzateo means to uh, dispute. It means to debate. It means to argue. (laughs) Correct pronunciation. (laughs) Our Greek speaker. Uh, So Luke says they're stirred up in debate about these things. They're not sure how to string together all of the events that took place over the weekend. In fact, when a stranger asks what they're speaking about, they say as much. What does it all mean, they want to know. Now, not only do they not understand what it all means, but as it turns out, there's also some competing narratives about how to interpret all the events that took place that weekend. Go figure. Uh, In the first century, there were something like um, three or four, there's several camps. Um, You can think of them as like parties, if you will, uh, which I know is hard to believe that there would be camps and parties, but uh, (laughs) nothing like our own time in which none of that stuff exists. So you've read about most of these in your Bibles. Um, I'm going to introduce you to three of them because they actually help us to understand why they're whipped up in debate about all these things. First, there were the zealots. Uh, You've read about the zealots before in the Gospels. Uh, They are a pretty central character in the unfolding of the story of God's people in uh, the first century. And uh, you also know of them because Jesus picks one to be one of his disciples, uh, Simon, who was called the zealot, uh, Luke tells us uh, in both um, Luke and also in Acts Now, the Zealots were the nationalist party. Uh, They were infuriated, absolutely infuriated by Roman occupation of Jerusalem uh, because they believed it diluted their identity as God's people and it also impeded their worship of God. You see, the Zealots remember the story of the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes forbidding the practice of their faith. They remember that, that this particular king wanted them to worship him. And they also remember the story of the Maccabees standing up to them and pushing them out of their land and out of their temple. They remember the victories in battle and the national sovereignty of God's people for a hundred years until the advent of Rome. And because of this story, the zealots were convinced that the only way to preserve their faith was through violent revolution. In fact, they relished the thought of revolution, of driving the Romans out of their land and out of the temple and out of their lives, and of God's people living in safety as a sovereign nation again, and ultimately for a warrior Messiah who would lead the ultimate death match between the Roman military and Jewish rebels, which, you might intuit, sort of rules out the need for resurrection, So that's the first party, the zealots. The second would be the Pharisees. You've read about the Pharisees too in your Bibles. You can think of the Pharisees like the moral formation party. 
They were infuriated by God's people not being faithful to the Torah and the law and the prophets. They insisted that faithfulness to the teachings of the scriptures was the way to preserve their faith and their identity even amidst Roman occupation. Now the Pharisees remember the story. They remember the story of Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. And they remember the story of God's people being unfaithful to the Torah and how it led to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the capital city, and their exile as the people of God. And because of that story, they are convinced that God's people for once should just be faithful to the law. And that if they were, God would rescue them and send a Messiah who would restore the temple and their land and bring the new heavens and the new earth and raise, bodily raise, all the people who have been faithful to the law and the prophets to inhabit the land forever. So this, these are the Pharisees. Now the third party would be the Sadducees. You've read about the Sadducees too in your Bibles. The Sadducees were the party of the religious elites. They were powerful, wealthy aristocrats who presided over the temple and everything that took place there. And because of that, they had a direct line to the priesthood and played a pretty important role in, in, serve, in selecting who would serve as high priest. Now, the Sadducees were also backed by Rome, and so they were pretty invested in maintaining the status quo no matter how bad things got for God's people. The Sadducees were also something like the liturgy police. They would definitely not want you to spill juice on the table during communion. Never mind. <laughs> now, the Sadducees, the Sadducees remember, all of this is because the Sadducees remember the story of Aaron being consecrated as God's priest, as the mediator between God and God's people, and the sacrificial system that God so graciously and mercifully gave to God's people to deal with sin once and for all. And because of that story, they believe that if God's people would just offer the right sacrifices at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, that God would be faithful to preserve them and to protect them and to rescue them. Oh, and they definitely don't believe in the resurrection because they're KJV only, I mean, Torah only. Uh, and so they don't think anything written after Deuteronomy offers anything of value to the practice of the faith, including ideas like resurrection. So three parties, the zealots, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, with three very different philosophies, three party platforms of the most faithful way to live as God's people, three animating stories for how God's people will be redeemed and rescued in three competing theories on the resurrection or the lack thereof. Now imagine you're the two disciples of Jesus and you're flipping channels, and you're thumbing the newspaper headlines, and you're listening to the podcast, can you hear the sound bites that might be playing in their heads? The resurrection is real, but only for people who keep the law flawlessly, some headlines say. Or the resurrection is a total lie, and anyone who believes it is just kidding themselves, some of the headlines might say. Or the victorious in battle don't need the resurrection. Or the real Messiah doesn't need a resurrection. The real Messiah would honor the Torah and wouldn't need to be handed over to be crucified. The real Messiah would have honored the temple and certainly wouldn't have driven people out of it with a whip. How on earth do you begin to sort through the noise? How on earth do you begin to sort it all out? There's no small wonder that the disciples are, these two disciples are stirred up in debate. Ironically, they're so wrapped up in their debate that they completely miss it when Jesus shows up, the risen Jesus shows up and starts to walk with them. 
Luke says their eyes were kept or prevented from recognizing Jesus. It's a, uh, uh, Luke reaches for a Greek word, kriteo. Uh, Repeat after me, kriteo. Kriteo. Uh, it means to seize or to arrest, as in their eyes were seized. They were blinded. Uh, they're sort of blinded from seeing the risen Jesus in their midst, which is kind of ironic. Um, and as a result, Luke says they are sad, blind and sad. This probably sounds like a lot, of, a, a lot like our own experience of flipping channels and listening to podcasts and browsing headlines in the newspaper, that somehow we go to these sources and we're left more confused and more perplexed about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus in our own time, that somehow we're more bewildered and more outraged and sometimes even just sad, even just sad. But something incredible happens in our story You see, as the disciples walk with the resurrected Christ, he takes the bits and the pieces of their debate, he takes the fragments of information that they have, and then he opens up the scriptures to them. Jesus places their debate into the fuller context of the teachings of Moses and all the prophets. Now, we don't know precisely what Jesus said to um, his disciples, only that he taught them from from Moses and the prophets, which is to say, the entire Old Testament which begins in Genesis 1 with a good God who creates a good world that he intends to bless through the very good humans that he places there to steward and rule it. And also Genesis 3, the story of a humanity who in spite of the goodness of God rebels and then in doing so ushers in all sorts of chaos and death into their world. But also the prayer of David in Psalm 16 the prayer to a faithful God who refuses to abandon humanity and creation to the chaos, the death, and the misery of its own making. He probably tells them the story of Abraham and Sarah who, who, through whom God enacts a daring rescue plan that begins with them and continues through their offspring and reaches its climax in the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 who would purchase our redemption with his own blood. And ultimately, he reminds them of the vision of a prophet named Daniel, who even in the worst of circumstances in Babylon, has a vision of how this servant, this son, would be raised to life and given dominion over an everlasting kingdom. Jesus opens the scriptures to them. Jesus reinterprets everything for them. And somehow, somehow, rather than their world and their lives and their hearts shrinking or becoming smaller or darker or sadder or more confused, everything gets bigger and brighter and more exciting and more hopeful. Why? Because the redemptive arc of God's story And the promises therein left like breadcrumbs throughout the scriptures quite literally towers over, overshadows, and dwarfs the competing theories and stories of their day and even our own. And it's such a relief to them. It's such good news to them. It's so compelling to them that they beg this stranger to stay with them just a little bit longer. Two closing thoughts here. First, I think the competing stories of the first century didn't begin as propaganda. Um, They actually began as real stories about real people interacting with their very real God in real time. For instance, the Sadducees. Oh, and so because of that, because of that, um, they're they're 
they're not entirely right, but they're also not entirely wrong. Uh, they're incomplete um, would be a good way to describe that. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the zealots are partly right. The Messiah really does overthrow sin, death, and darkness and will himself purge it from creation so that God's people can live freely and unencumbered as they serve him forever. The Pharisees are also sort of right. Faithful love of God and one another is the heart, not only of the law and the prophets, Jesus says, but the way to live as a follower of Jesus now and into eternity. And along with it, resurrection hope, not for the perfect and the flawless, but specifically and precisely for those who place their trust in the Jesus who inaugurates it. And the Sadducees too are also sort of right. Sin really is so destructive of our hearts and our lives and our world that there really did need to be a way of dealing with it once and for all. And the sacrificial system points the way. Are you catching that? They're all a little bit right. They're all completely wrong in some other places, which I realize might be unfashionable to say. But the point is that all of them are woefully incomplete and inadequate in light of the fuller story that is being woven for us in and through the scriptures. I wonder if a word for us today might be um, what I think this text teaches us about humble conviction, about holding our convictions with humility, because even when we're right, we can still miss some important details of the story. For that reason, humble conviction listens to others with curiosity. Humble conviction is able to give an account when asked what it believes. Humble conviction asks really good questions of God and of the scriptures and of ourselves and of our own hearts and motives and also of others. And in and because of all of these, humble conviction is able to discern the way forward. I think we see this most clearly in Acts chapter 15, a beautiful example of God's people discerning the way forward, which culminates in a letter to the Gentiles who are then welcomed into the church, a letter that begins, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. But the pattern begins here on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus meets his disciples in the midst of their blindness and their sadness. I think it's quite stunning that the disciples learn from the risen Christ but still don't quite recognize him until they come to the table with him. There as he takes and blesses and breaks and gives the bread as he had done countless times before in their midst, the scales fall from their eyes. There they recognize their Messiah and their teacher and their shepherd and their friend. There they see him as the one who promises to always sustain them and nourish them even in the most confusing times they might face. And not just them, also us. You see, Christ also promises to always meet us in his word too, to always meet us in the waters of baptism, to always meet us in the bread and the cup at the table. It is a miracle that every time we turn to that very same old, simple word of the Lord, it still has something life-giving to say to us about the complexity of our world and of our lives and of our hearts. It is a miracle that every time we turn to these mundane elements of bread and wine or juice, that somehow they nourish us and sustain us and all of this, all of this because of the fact of the risen Christ who meets us there. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful 
not only that you chose us and loved us before the foundations of the world, but that you redeemed us through Christ, that you continue to show us yourself in word and in sacrament, that you continue to knit us to you and one another, that we might see you, that we might hear you, that we might worship you in spirit and truth. Continue to stir our hearts with excitement and joy, the kind of excitement and joy that sent the disciples running back instead of leaving Jerusalem prematurely, running back to the other disciples ready for the mission of God. And in the hardest of circumstances, cure our blindness and our sadness at the table. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tierra and friends. Today, we really are celebrating the good news that Jesus Christ is a waymaker. The zealots sought salvation by military might. The Pharisees sought salvation by perfect righteousness. The Sadducees sought salvation by political alignment. Jesus offered salvation by death and resurrection. There's an Easter song that says, he lives, he lives, salvation to impart. He walks with me, he talks with me along life's narrow way. And that's what happened in the story today, right? The road to Emmaus, he comes and walks alongside these two travelers. He opens the scriptures to them. He opens their eyes. And they finally recognize him in the elements of the table, in the breaking of the bread. So we hope it would also be so for us this morning as we gather at his table that we would meet the risen Christ in this very place. Friends, at Fellowship, this table is for all who love God and who are learning to follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, we can't say thank you enough. It might even seem trite to say thank you. Thank you for this world that you created. Thank you for creating us in your image. And thank you for recklessly pursuing a loving relationship with us, even when we and even as we have fallen into the dark, dark brokenness of this world and the sin that so entangles us. And so we say thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world and not just sending him uh, for uh, the world's sake, but even for our very own sake. And so we pray that as we gather together around this table that we might encounter that risen Christ, that we might encounter that Christ through this bread and this cup and through the community of people that we get to enjoy it with. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your love for us that we know in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. On the same night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take Eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup, the third cup called the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is a cup of a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. The bread which we break and the cup which we bless are to us the communion of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This morning, uh, we will be receiving communion by intinction, which means the servers who can come forward at this time will be standing up front, and you will take a piece of bread, and after dip, taking the bread, you can dip it in the cup and then return to your seat. There's a nice little nifty diagram. You exit left, return to the right, come when you're ready, no hurry, um, but make sure we're done. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> There will be a gluten-free station over here. There will be stations in front of each section up here. And there will also be two rovers that will make themselves available if you'd prefer to be served in your seat. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. 
Come for all things are now ready.
together in the darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and province to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory Oh uh-huh. 
Not that it's a competition, but if it were, you guys win for efficient communion line. (laughs) Uh, One final blessing for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.